John chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord we're going to be considering today. May he add his blessing to its reading and to the preaching of it. You may be seated. Our Father in heaven, as always, we pray primarily that your name would be hallowed among us. Or that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, that's our yearning, that's our desire, that's the longing of our hearts that you have birthed within us by the Spirit, through the truth, and we pray, Lord, that you would bring all of those petitions prayed by your people over the last 2,000 years, that you would bring those to fruition. God, that you would answer our prayers, that you would hallow your name in this world, in the earth, that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, that your kingdom would be brought in in all of its majesty and power and splendor, that Jesus would be shown as the true king over the world, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we long for that. Even even as we see those requests not fully realized even in our own lives, it is still the ultimate desire that you have put within us. And so, Father, despite what we are in ourselves, we come before you in the name of another. We come before you in the name of Jesus, and we pray in his name that for his sake, you would 
answer our prayers. That you would look into the face of your Son, Father, even at this moment. And for His sake, in light of His sufferings, in light of His victory, in light of the fact that He represents us in Your presence in glory even now, in light of that, Lord, would You accomplish a great work among us this morning. I pray You would use Your Word, Lord, to affect our hearts, Lord, to shape our minds, to change us from what we are in ourselves further into what You have designed for us to be in Your Son. Lord, I can, I can tell, I can feel, I can discern, I think, that we in many ways feel run down this morning. Um, at least, Lord, that is the effect of living in this fallen world. And so we pray that you would renew us today. Revive us according to your word. Refresh us, Lord, with the gospel of your Son. Give us assurance of salvation in his name. Help us know that we've been born again as children of God. And let us walk in the fullness of that fellowship with you in his name. Pray that you would bless us, Lord. I pray you'd be with us and open your word to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I get into the message today, um, I feel that I owe something to my wife, and I'm going to just give it to her in front of everybody here. Uh, I'm really grieving over a situation that happened yesterday. Um, I had a Jewish family break down, and uh, by God's grace, they were able to roll into our parking lot. And uh, I just was working in the office and uh, looked out the window and noticed that the engine was smoking. And I was like, well, I'm not a mechanic. I can't do any, too much about that. But I can at least go meet them and uh, seek out an opportunity with them. So I uh, didn't know they were Jewish at the time, obviously. I was like, uh, can't tell those things necessarily. Um, but after meeting with them and talking with them, uh, you know, when Paul says in Second, 1 Corinthians 2 that he was among the Corinthians in much weakness and in fear and much trembling, Oh, I felt that yesterday. I felt intimidated by them, even as I opened up Daniel 9 to them and just saying, you know, Daniel 9 says that the Messiah was going to be revealed in between the time that the temple was rebuilt and the city was rebuilt, and then it was destroyed again. It's a second temple Judaism. The Messiah was going to be revealed then. How do you answer that? And I was so weak, and I was so pathetic in my presentation of it, and I've been grieving over that all day yesterday and all morning this morning. And, um, 
You know, when I don't know if you ever experienced that. When you share the gospel with people, you feel the fear, you feel the trembling, you feel the weakness, and you come away thinking, oh man, I should have said that. Why couldn't I have thought of that in that moment? <laughs> you know what you need to remember in that moment is what I need to remember right now, that God exalts His power not through our strength. <laughs> it's not through our wisdom or our ability to share things well that the Lord chooses to work. In fact, He chooses, He purposefully chooses to work when we are, when our weaknesses are most manifest. And uh, I would ask you all to pray for that family. Um, I can give you names later, but if you would like to pray for them specifically, but pray for them that the Lord would take the seed of Christ that was sown yesterday and would cause it to grow in such a way that they would know that this is Yahweh who's done this. This is not that goofy pastor at Oak Ridge Community Church. So. I feel better. Thank you, guys. Well, today as we come to John 3, uh, we have been looking at what Jesus says about the need to be born again. And as we've said in light uh, of what Jesus says here, uh, because he attaches eternal significance to the reality of the new birth and the need to experience the new birth, the most important question that any of us can ask and find an answer for is, how can I know if I've been born again? Jesus says it must happen, you must be born again, or else you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. So the question is, how can I know if I've been born again? In John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus, as we've mentioned, gives us a clue, the clue that we need in order to seek out an answer to that question. Just as we can discern the movements of the wind by paying attention to its effects, so also can we discern the movement of the Spirit in accomplishing the new birth by paying attention to the effects that the Spirit produces when He does that. So we've looked at two of those so far, at least two of them that are presented here in John 3. What does the Spirit enable us to do? And to, uh, what does He accomplish in us? What are the effects that He produces in us whenever He brings about the new birth? One of them is that we, by His grace, are enabled to see the kingdom of, of God. What we were not able to see in Christ before, all of a sudden we have been awakened. We have been illumined. We can now see the glory of Jesus in a way we could not see it before, and we are drawn to Him. And that leads to the second change, the second effect that the Spirit produces in us. We not only see the kingdom of God, but we can then enter into the kingdom of God. Being delivered from the power of Satan, being delivered from the power of sin, we are set free, our chains fell off, and we rose in freedom in Christ and followed after Him in His kingdom. Now today we're going to look at what I see to be a third proof or a third evidence of the new birth here in John chapter 3, one that actually encompasses uh, any and every other evidence that we could bring up in Scripture. And that is, uh, the third evidence is, third evidence of the new birth in a person's life is the presence of faith. The presence of faith. If the Holy Spirit has caused us to be born again, we will have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is the ultimate fruit of regeneration. That's the ultimate proof that we have been born again. We are believing in Jesus. In fact, throughout the Bible, we find that faith is seen as the crowning fruit of regeneration. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, this is really important to notice the tenses behind these verbs. If you have a New American Standard, uh, it really falls short. It misses the mark in translating this verse. The ESV gets it right. And yes, yes, Grant, you can, you can keep that in mind. And... Uh, <laughs> I had something good to say about the English Standard Version of the Bible today. Not often, but it happens. In 1 John 5.1, it says, everyone who believes in Jesus, that's present tense, right? That's something in Greek language, that's something that is happening right now. You are believing in Jesus. It's, a, it's an ongoing process that is, that is taking place at this moment. Now, the text says, everyone who is currently believing that Jesus is the Christ, something has happened to that person prior to their believing that enables them to believe. And what is that? Well, if we are believing, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the reason they are believing is because they already have been born of God. So if you've been born of God, the fruit of that will be faith in Jesus Christ. That's the teaching of that verse. In fact, I would, just as a parenthesis here, those of you who maybe struggle a bit with election and discerning whether or not you are among the chosen people of God, the Bible talks about election. We've got to deal with it, right? You, got to, you have to address the issue of election. That can make a lot of people very uncomfortable. How, how can I know if I am among those who are chosen of God for salvation? Well, Acts 13.48 tells us that we can know we are among the elect by the fact that we believe in Jesus. It says in Acts 13.48 that as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Believed what? They believed the message of the gospel. Now, you notice the pairing there. If you have been appointed unto eternal life, as many as were appointed to eternal life. That means everyone who was appointed unto eternal life by the grace of God wound up believing in the gospel. So how do you know if you're among the elect? You know you're among the elect by answering the question, do I truly and sincerely and genuinely believe in Jesus? Now, we've already seen this connection between faith and the new birth in the Gospel of John. You remember John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13? It says, as many as received him. There's that as many language again, right? As many as. As many as received him, to them, Jesus gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but who were born of God. Now, according to this verse, very clearly, faith does not cause the new birth. Faith is the fruit of the new birth. You believe in Jesus and you receive Jesus because you have been born of God. Therefore, in light of that, if we want to discern whether or not we have experienced the new birth, 
then according to the scriptures, we simply need to ask the question, do I truly have faith in Jesus Christ? We find that same emphasis right here in Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, specifically in verses 10 through 12. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. As Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about the need and the reality of the new birth, in verses 10 through 12, he points to Nicodemus' lack of faith as the main proof that he had not yet experienced the new birth. So Nicodemus is struggling to understand what Jesus is talking about. He says, listen, Nicodemus, if you want to be a member of the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. You have to be born from above in order to be a member of the kingdom. Well, that's totally contrary to what Nicodemus had been raised thinking. For Nicodemus, he already was part of the kingdom of God. He was a circumcised Jew. He belonged to the covenant people of God. He was part of Israel. He was not only a Jew, he was among the Pharisees, the strictest keepers of the law of God. He was one of the rulers of the Jewish people. If there was anything that, if there was anyone in Israel who would have had confidence that they belonged to God's kingdom, Nicodemus would have fit the bill. Jesus says to him, nope, that's not enough. You've got to be born again if you're going to be in the kingdom of God. As he's struggling with that, Jesus points to this main evidence to prove that he did not yet belong to the Lord. It was his lack of faith. Now you see that in verses 10, verse 11, and verse 12. In verse 10, Nicodemus, it says, Nicodemus did not yet understand Christ's teaching about the kingdom. In verse 11, we find that Nicodemus had not yet accepted Christ's testimony about the kingdom. And then, and then in verse 12, it says that Nicodemus was not believing in Christ's teaching about the kingdom. Now, these are three manifestations of the fact that Nicodemus did not yet have true and saving faith, which, as I've said, served as proof that he was not yet a member of the kingdom of God and was still in need of the new birth. Now, that makes sense, right? If you are not believing in the message about the kingdom as it is given to you by the king of the kingdom, then doesn't that signify that you do not belong to the kingdom? If the king of the kingdom gives you a message about what it means to be a part of his kingdom and you don't believe that message, what does that say about your standing in his kingdom? It says that you're not a part of it. Now that was Nicodemus and Jesus proves that here in this, in this chapter and that is evidence that he had not yet experienced a new birth. Now, if the lack of these things demonstrates the absence of the new birth, if the lack of understanding Christ's teaching about the kingdom, the lack of accepting Christ's teaching about the kingdom, the lack of believing into that teaching about his kingdom, if the lack of those things manifests the reality that you have not yet experienced the new birth, then the presence of those things manifests the reality that you have experienced the new birth, right? Amen? 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 And in that way, the presence of faith is what becomes the signal evidence to prove that we have indeed been born of God. Now that leads us to ask the question, I like questions because it helps me process through information. 
That leads us to ask another question. If it's true that faith is the main evidence of the new birth, then what is faith? If in trying to discern whether or not I have actually been born again from God, if I need to discern whether or not I have faith, and that will be the evidence of whether I've actually been born of God, then how do I determine what faith is? There are all kinds of various opinions about faith. In fact, we've already seen in the Gospel of John that there was a false faith. At the end of John chapter 2, there was a false faith among the people that Jesus did not entrust himself to. Right? Faith focused on miracles, focused on Jesus as a miracle worker, upon what Jesus could do for them, but not upon who Jesus was. Not upon the teaching of Jesus. There is a false faith, and we're going to see much, much more of that as we move through the Gospel of John. There were many people who, had, who were experiencing a false faith in Jesus. So if there is the reality of false faith and the reality of genuine faith, how do I distinguish between the two? How can I tell which one I have or I possess? Now, if we're trying to discern whether or not we have faith, the first thing we need to do is understand what, that, what true faith is. Now, we learn from, from different passages in the Bible that faith is a gift from God that is given to us according to His grace. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, along with salvation, faith is the means by which we receive salvation, and faith and salvation is identified here as a gift that is given to us from God. In fact, Philippians 1.29 says the exact same thing with different language. It says that it has been granted to those who are believers, it has been granted to them to believe in Jesus. They didn't decide to believe in Jesus on their own. It was given to them. It was given to them as a privilege by God the Father to come in faith to His Son. So faith, we learn in the New Testament, is a gift from God. But what exactly is faith? What does it do? How does faith function? This is where believers who have wrestled with these things in the past can be so helpful to you and me. For example, the Reformers. The Reformers had to wrestle with this question regarding faith, I think, uh, more than anything else, or at least as much as anything else. They had to battle the Catholic notions of implicit faith. You guys know what that is? Catholicism would define faith as not faith in Jesus or not faith, personal faith in the truth, but faith in the church. Faith that the church got it right, that the church was teaching you the truth, and that the church had determined that you belonged to the kingdom of God. That was implicit faith. That was faith that you were simply abandoning yourself to the determination of the church as the deciding factor in your eternal state. The reformers were waging war against that. And then also against the belief that faith was merely a mental assent to facts, right? Like, I know the facts of the gospel. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived a righteous life. Jesus died on the cross. He was raised again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. One day he's coming again. Check, 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 check. I got it mentally. I believe. Well, they were also fighting against that as well. Because that's not true genuine faith either. At least not in its fullness. So over against implicit faith and faith that would be defined as merely mental assent, the Heidelberg Catechism, for example, 
defines faith in question 21 as true faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but it's also an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart. That not only to others, but also to me, the remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace and only for the sake of Christ's merit. Isn't that beautiful? What is faith, the Heidelberg Catechism says? Well, here is what faith is. Faith is a certain knowledge about the gospel. And not just a general knowledge about the gospel, but a knowledge about the gospel that has penetrated your own mind and heart. It's, a, it's, a, it's an assured confidence that the Holy Ghost works into your heart through the gospel so that you not only become aware of the promises of God that are given us in Jesus, but those promises are actually beginning to be owned by you in your soul. You are laying hold of them. You are grabbing onto them. You are bringing them into yourself. That's what faith does. It's a certain knowledge, it's an assured confidence that the Holy Spirit works into us that we have truly been given the remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, salvation, freely of God's grace and for the sake of Christ's merits alone. Christ earned it for us and we're simply receiving it. It's a wonderful, wonderful definition of faith. Now the Presbyterians and the Baptists, I would say the Baptists primarily, because I'm a Baptist. Uh, the, the Baptists were the pinnacle of the Reformation. I hope you know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No more reform was needed after the Baptists came along. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't bring me up on heresy charges in light of that. No, the Presbyterians and Baptists went further than that definition of faith by focusing on the response of faith. So really what you have in the Heidelberg Catechism is the content of faith. You've got a true knowledge of Scripture. And then one element of the action of faith, which is receiving that knowledge. You have the content, and then you are receiving that content. Well, the Baptists uh, and Presbyterians went a little further than that, focusing a little more on the response of faith. In question 91 of the Baptist Catechism, it asks, What is faith in Jesus Christ? And the answer is, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. It is receiving and it is resting upon Christ alone as he is offered to us in the gospel. So what, if we were to take what is faith in Jesus out of that and simply ask what is faith, the Baptist Catechism would say it is simply receiving and it is resting in something. So this is why the, the greatest way to understand what faith is and how it saves us is to understand it as a hand that has been emptied of everything else it's clutching to in order to receive the gift of Jesus. It's the empty hand that reaches up and takes hold of Christ. That's what faith is. So faith hears and personally understands the message about salvation for sinners through Jesus Christ as it is made known in the gospel. 
So we hear about God the Son humbling himself and coming down from heaven to be our perfect and all-sufficient Savior. We hear the message of Jesus coming to us in love and in love for us living a perfect life under God's holy law giving his own life as a holy sacrifice to God for our sakes upon the cross, rising again from the dead and ascending into glory where he takes his seat on the throne of heaven as a merciful and faithful high priest in our stead. He stands there as our representative in the presence of the Father, pleading the promises that the Father has made to us, sealed by his own blood and bringing us safely to glory. When, the, when faith hears the message of the gospel, faith attaches itself to that message and rests and relies upon it. That is a summary of what faith is. Now that sounds good, but where did they get those ideas? Right? Our faith is not built upon the thoughts of people who have gone before us primarily. It is built upon the scriptures. The scriptures are the foundation of our faith. So where did the reformers get these ideas that faith is resting and faith is receiving and faith involves a certain knowledge and an assured confidence about the truth of the gospel? Well, they got that from passages like what we're looking at today. John chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Where Jesus describes faith in almost the exact same way that they did. Seems to be a correlation there. Maybe they borrowed language from him. I'm sure Jesus didn't borrow language from them. Jesus says here that faith is focused upon his teaching. It's focused upon his testimony, right? And he describes that faith in terms of understanding his testimony, of accepting his testimony, of believing in his testimony. Now we can distinguish these three aspects of saving faith, but they are not able to be separated from one another. And it's really important for us to get that. As we're talking about walking through this passage and looking at these different facets of faith as Jesus describes it, these things are distinguishable, but they are not separate. So faith involves understanding. Faith involves receiving. But faith also involves believing. And if you don't have that total package of faith in your life, then you don't yet have biblical saving faith. Okay? Everybody with me? Yeah? All right. So you can think about these understanding, accepting, believing. You can think about these three things as maybe like three different facets on a diamond. It's the same diamond, but you turn it and you see one facet here, another facet there, another facet there. Each of those facets comprises the whole diamond, if it only had three facets. Right. Well, in that same way, that's kind of what faith is, that's how faith is being described here. Jesus is taking true, believing, saving faith, and he's turning it slightly and showing us a different facet of what it is. It's understanding. It's receiving. It's believing. And we're going to talk about the distinction between faith and belief next week. All right. Get you excited. Filled with anticipation. Like, oh, man, I can't wait till he gets to that. I don't know if I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. No, these different elements that Jesus, as Jesus describes faith here, these different elements really... You can think of it almost also like a rainbow, right? A rainbow is made up of various colors, but all of the colors form what a rainbow is. So it's the same way with these. These, these are different 
different colors of faith, if you will. It involves the understanding, the mind. It involves accepting uh, the, the change in affections. And then it involves believing, which is an act of the will. All of these three, three things have to come together in order to make the rainbow of faith. I'm going to redeem that concept in our day. Bring it back to being biblical. All right, so today what we're going to do is in trying to grasp what saving faith is, we're going to look at these different facets and we're hopefully going to gain a, a better appreciation and understanding of how they help us understand what faith is. Um, but I promise you we're, all, we're only going to look at one for the rest of the time. We're not going to look at all three today. So the first one we're going to look at and the only one today, the rest of our time, is found in verse 10 where Jesus describes faith in terms of an ability to understand his teaching, an ability to understand truth. You see that in verse 10, where Jesus responds to Nicodemus' confusion by saying, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? An inability to understand Jesus' teaching simply revealed that Nicodemus lacked faith in Jesus. And therefore, if someone has true understanding of his teaching, it is at least one marker that shows that that person does have true faith. In order for truth to govern the soul, it has to penetrate the mind. Agree with that? Our faith is not a mindless, emotional frenzy. right? It's, it's not some incoherent, illogical expression of just well, I hope that Jesus is real and I hope the gospel is true and I guess one day we're all going to find out, right? It's like, well, everything may not be true, but if, if it turns out that this is true, I at least want to be found on the right side of Jesus. Right? That's not saving faith. Saving faith is, is not merely an illogical, abandoned hope that's unreasonable and has no basis for it. Faith begins with an understanding in the mind. That your mind is pricked by the truth. Your mind is shaped by the truth. Even your, your perspective, your worldview changes in an instant. And all of a sudden, what you thought was true before is radically different than what it is now. It's this change in concept of, 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 of mental understanding that Jesus is really driving at here in verse 10. Jesus affirms this in other places in the Gospel of John. For example, in John 8.43, he said to the Jewish leaders, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. That is, you don't understand what I'm saying because you don't have the ability to hear what I'm saying. Now, obviously, Jesus is not talking about their physical ability to hear his words because they did hear his words. He was speaking words, and they were hearing his words with their physical ears, but that's not the kind of hearing that Jesus was talking about. He's saying that they didn't have the spiritual ability to hear what he was teaching them. And he goes on in John 8, verses 46 and 47, to equate the lack of understanding with the lack of believing. So in verse 43, he said, why do you not understand what I'm saying? In verse 46, he says, why do you not believe me? Why do you not believe what I'm saying? And then he goes on to tell them, he who is of God hears the words of God, and for this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. 
So what is the reason why they would not believe in the message of Jesus? Because they weren't of God, and they couldn't understand it. So according to Jesus, our, our ability to hear and understand Jesus' teaching depends on whether or not we are of God. The same language from John 1.13, that is, whether or not we have been born of God. Now, for a qualification, the kind of understanding that accompanies faith is not merely an ability to understand the facts about the gospel. It's not simply being um, able to connect all the dots of the gospel logically in your own mind or having a mental assent to the facts of the gospel. Unbelievers can do that. In fact, Bart Ehrman, a well-known and celebrated apostate from Christianity, is very capable of explaining to you the basic tenets of the gospel. He can explain to you the message of the gospel as it is revealed in the scriptures. But despite all of his learning, the problem with Bart Ehrman is that he cannot comprehend, what, despite all of his learning and comprehension of the message of scripture, he does not have a spiritual understanding of the truthfulness of that message. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about understanding. It is a spiritual understanding of the gospel's truthfulness. The kind of understanding that Jesus is getting at with Nicodemus is this spiritual understanding. It's a divine illumination that is produced in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Really, you could think of it as an internal persuasion about the truthfulness of Jesus' teaching. Even an internal persuasion that's irresistible. That once you have been awakened to see what is true and what is real in Jesus, you can no longer go back. You can't unsee what you've been made to see by the Spirit. Unbelievers don't have that internal persuasion about the truthfulness of Jesus. They're lost in a shadow and they can't discern what is true. So for example, in Ephesians 4, 17-18, Paul describes unbelievers as those who walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. What keeps them from seeing the truth about God? It's the, it's the darkness that is over their mind. It keeps them from being able to understand. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded what? He's blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And even 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. An unbeliever can grasp the facts of the gospel. What the unbeliever cannot grasp is the glory of the gospel. This is why John says at the opening of the gospel, we have beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. See, in beholding the glory of Jesus, John can say, we beheld in Him a fullness of glory. We beheld in Him a fullness of grace. We beheld in Him a fullness of truth. An unbeliever cannot see that on his or her own because they're blind to it. And until we experience that supernatural change that God brings about in the new birth, until we're filled with the Holy Spirit who comes to glorify Jesus in the hearts of sinners, 
Until that happens to us, we are not going to be enabled to understand the truths of the gospel. We will remain blinded to them. But through the new birth, this is the first thing that the Holy Spirit attacks. This lack of understanding, this blindness of the glory of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, even though in verse 14 it says that the natural man, the man who does not have the Spirit of God in him or her, the the person, even though that person cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, believers are described as those who have received the Spirit who is from God so that we might know the things graciously given to us by God. How does that translate into discerning whether or not you have been born again? Well, let me ask you the question. When you hear about the gracious and glorious things that God has done in Jesus Christ, what happens in your heart? What takes place in the mind? Do you understand and grasp something of the magnificence and the magnitude of what Jesus has done to save sinners like you? Or does it fall flat on your heart? Are you enabled to to grasp where where the message, the word of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1.18, where the word of the cross is no longer something that is foolishness to you, but it's something in which you see the very power of God working for your salvation. See, discerning whether or not we have been born again of the Spirit begins right here with how do we understand the message about Jesus? Are our spiritual eyes awakened to see the truth about Christ? To embrace it. 1 John 2.20 describes it this way. It says, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all. You know all things. Now right there, what is that anointing talking about? Do you know the context of this? Do you know what it says in verse 19? The verse just prior to this. It's talking about those who abandon the faith. Those who we thought were walking among us, but they went out from us proving that they never really were of us. John flips the coin to the believers, or flips the page to the believers and says, but with you, we have a greater confidence because you have an anointing from the Holy One that teaches you all things. Right? Those who abandon their faith in the gospel are those who were never enlightened to understand the gospel to begin with. That's the point. Ephesians 1.18, it describes this work of the Spirit as the work of enlightening the eyes of our hearts and enabling us to know the hope of the gospel in our souls. That's what we're getting at when we talk about being awakened in our understanding of the gospel by the Spirit. We're talking about the eyes of our hearts being enlightened so that we can see the significance and the truthfulness of the claims of Jesus made known to us in the gospel. The old dead guys used to speak of this as divine illumination. That this is what happens when your understanding is awakened to the gospel is you are being divinely illuminated to see the truth of it. So the 1689 Confession, for example, in chapter 1 and paragraph 6, it describes this as the inward illumination of the Spirit of God 
for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the word. So what produces a saving understanding of the things that are revealed to us in the word? It's this inward illumination of the spirit of God. This is what paragraph 5 in that same chapter describes as the inward work of the Holy Spirit that works in our hearts a full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Scriptures. What causes us to believe that this book was truly spoken forth by God? It's not because we can compile a bunch of evidence that proves the historicity of it. It's not because archaeology confirms the message of the Bible that we believe the message of the Bible. If a man can reason you into the faith of Jesus, then a man can come along and reason you out of the faith of Jesus. We don't take the Word of God to be the Word of God simply because some other man told us that this is the Word of God. If that is the basis of your confidence in the Word, then your confidence is falling short of what God would have for you. Our confidence that the Word of God truly is the Word of God and is an infallible Word from God and has authority to rule and govern our lives as God's spoken Word. Our confidence in that comes from this inward illumination of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It says here, bearing witness to us by and with the Word in our hearts. You know what that's talking about if you're a believer. You know those times of sitting down and reading the Scriptures and all of a sudden something happens in your soul and there's this power and this authority. There's this gripping move of the Scriptures upon your heart where all of a sudden you are convicted of your sin. You are brought to a greater a greater sense of faith in Jesus. You are brought to a deeper understanding of the realities of God as you're reading in the Word. Guys, that's not produced by you. That is produced by the Holy Spirit ministering to you. That's what causes confidence in His Word to really be built up in the lives of His people. That the more and more we read in the Scriptures, the more we devote ourselves to taking in the truth of of God's Word, the more the Holy Spirit within us bears witness to the truth of that Word and makes it alive in our own hearts. When the Holy Spirit causes you to be born again, the result can only be described as an instinctive persuasion and assurance of the truthfulness of God's Word, particularly the truthfulness of Jesus' Word to us. Not exclusively, I'm just saying particularly the message about Jesus. When you became a believer... If you are a true believer in this room, when you became a believer, no one had to tell you that this was the Word of God. No one had to give you 12 evidences that prove that you ought to believe this Word. There was an instinctual response. When you became a believer, you knew that this was God's Word. What brought that about in you? What caused you to believe that? It was the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit concerning the truthfulness of God. So we don't need to be ashamed, just parentheses, we don't need to be ashamed to say that Christianity is a word-based religion. It is God's 
continual voice speaking to us in the pages of Scripture, off the pages of Scripture even, from it. Now, for all of his quirks, the writings of J.I. Packer, I think, are still some of the most helpful uh, works on theology that have been written in our time. And uh, in his book, Concise Theology, he wrote about the effect that this work of divine illumination has upon us. And I wanted to quote that to you because I thought it would be helpful. J.I. Packer writes that the result of this, this, this divine illumination, the result of this witness of the Spirit, is a state of mind in which both the Savior and the Scriptures have evidenced themselves to us as divine. Do you see, do you follow him there? The result of this inward witness of the Holy Spirit is that it brings us to a state of mind in which both the Savior and the Scriptures have evidenced themselves to us as divine. So Jesus is evidenced to us as a divine person, the Scriptures as a divine product. And when he does this, it's done in such a way that is as direct, immediate, and arresting as that in which taste and colors force themselves upon our senses. Grant, when you eat a steak, you don't have to convince yourself that that steak tastes really good, unless I cooked it for you. <laughs> or uh, Jared, I would not cook your steak the way you cooked mine, right? When you, make, when, you, when you make a peanut butter and jelly, if you like that, kids, you don't have, yeah, right? You don't have to convince yourself, you don't have to tell yourself what it tastes like. The taste forces itself upon you. And you're, you're kind of like a passive receiver of what that tastes like, right? Like right now, you guys, are, you guys are subject to my color choice patterns, whatever they might be, for better or for worse today. Right? The colors of my shirt, the color of my jacket, the color of my face, it's all pressing itself upon you and forcing itself upon you through the senses of your eyes. You see the colors that I'm wearing. You don't have to convince yourself, oh yeah, Seth is wearing this color shirt and Seth is wearing that color jacket. You're not reasoning that way in your mind. It's an automatic, instinctive recognition of what I am wearing, right? Packer is saying it's the same way with the Word of God after this work of divine illumination has happened in our hearts. When the Spirit awakens us to know God, all of a sudden, guess what else we know? We know the voice of God. And we hear his voice speaking in the scriptures. Jesus said in John 10, I know my sheep, right? They do what? They follow me. They know my voice and they follow me. That's the product of divine illumination. So where this divine illumination, this internal persuasion is present, and we are brought to understand the teaching of Christ in truth, that serves as evidence that the Spirit has caused us to be born again. Now, with that said, that's not the full picture of what saving faith accomplishes in us. It does accomplish within us an illumined mind, but it also must include two other elements in order to be saving faith. If we were just talking about the illumination of the mind and the realization internally of what is actually true, heavenly realities, then 
If that was the limit of our faith, then there would be no distinction between that kind of faith and the kind of faith that demons express. John two, or James 2.19, there's a kind of internal persuasion, there's a kind of belief that even demons have, and they shudder in light of that truth. There is, there is a recognition of what is true in demons. If our faith never goes further than an illumined understanding of what is true, we never act on it, then our faith is no better than demons. In fact, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 warns us that a person can be brought to the point where they are in some measure enlightened by the Holy Spirit and they in some way taste the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and yet still fall away and be unbelievers. So true faith must, have, must be something more than merely being awakened to that which is true. It must be a kind of understanding that moves us to do something else. And that's what Jesus describes in the rest of John 3, 11 and 12. He describes it as receiving the truth and as believing in the truth. And we're going to pick up on that next week. Now, as we prepare for the table, we're closing here. I can ask you, my friend, do you have real and spiritual understanding of the truth of Jesus? Have you been awakened to, to sense and to see the significance of Jesus' teaching such that you are attached to it and you can no longer deny the truthfulness of it? Like what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5, have you have you been so gripped and awakened by the truth of God's Word that it can only be described as coming to you with power and with the Holy Spirit and with fullness of conviction? Or 1 Thessalonians 2.13, have you been awakened to understand the Word of God, the Word of the Gospel, not merely as the words and teaching of men, but in, but in fact as what it really is, the Word of God? Have you been awakened to see that in the Gospel of Jesus? If you can say yes to that, then you need to recognize that as a marker of true, genuine faith in your life that the Spirit has caused to come about in you. And in light of that, you need to come to this table rejoicing in that faith and taking hold of Christ for all that He is and all that He promises to be for you. I'm not saying that there will not be doubts. I'm not saying there won't be insecurities. I won't, I'm not saying that there will no longer be questions that you might have about what the text actually means or maybe moments where you're thinking to yourself, oh man, do I really know that Jesus is true? Guys, that happens to all of us. That is part of the struggle against our flesh. It's part of living in this fallen world. That's not what I'm talking about. In the believer who has been awakened to, 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 a, to a realization of what is true in Jesus, even in the face of those doubts, the believer is always and continually seeking understanding. Where like in the unbeliever, doubts will creep up in their heart and it will cause them to be disillusioned and cause them to walk away from the faith. In the believer, even when doubts and speculative thoughts come up, it causes the believer, it's almost like a goad, urging the believer on towards further understanding and clarity of understanding regarding the gospel. It's, it's, um, the, the expression from the Reformation, I, I believe, was uh, credo ut antelegam. It was faith seeking understanding. Faith seeking knowledge. 
Right? That, that is the process of the believer's life. I'm not talking about an understanding and a conviction that is absolutely perfect and without doubts. But if there is a realization in your heart that Jesus is true, that His gospel is real, such a realization that you know you cannot depart from it, that is a work of the Spirit of God in you. And you need to come to this table rejoicing in that faith. If that's not you, then now is not the time for you to participate in this table. Now is the time for you to seek Jesus as King and to beg Him to save you and to be your Lord, to be your Master. Pray for the gift of, of grace, the gift of faith to be granted to you so that you latch on to this King that you've not yet come to know. Why don't we pray in preparation for the table? Lord, we are weak and pathetic, and you are mighty and strong. Lord, we are utterly unable, but you are entirely able. We are completely insufficient, but you are our sufficiency. And so, Lord, I pray that as believers, we would come to this table rejoicing in the truth today, rejoicing in the God who has awakened us to understand the truth of Jesus. Revive our hearts, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.